to consider this Acts 28, the last few verses there, 15 or so verses. We've been surveying this book of the Acts over the past 12 months. We began chapter 28 a couple of weeks ago as the Apostle Paul with some of his close companions and a couple of hundred other people found themselves shipwrecked on the Isle of Melite, this small island country in the Mediterranean Sea. Paul was, of course, on his way to Rome. After he appealed to Caesar, he was a Roman citizen, and it was his right to do so. In the trial of his life, he appealed to Caesar, and he began this journey from Caesarea. After weeks of storms and hardship, he landed on this shores of Melita, this, this place of sweetness, it means, in the Greco-Roman world. We know it as the island of Malta, but it's translated the land of honey or the place of sweetness or sweet honey. And we said there's this beautiful and ironic kingdom dynamic that many times God shows himself faithful to us by providing sweetness in the difficult or challenging place. Have you ever noticed this in your life, that it's in the difficult and challenging times that you actually can experience God's presence and his provision? He brings these reminders to us as he did here with Paul. Hey, I've called you uh, to a land of milk and honey, saved you from the waters, and and brought you to this place of sweetness, even in the middle of the challenge that he was facing. Paul had faced hardship and challenge at every turn, whether it was persecution, physical assaults and beatings. He was on trial figuratively and now literally, only to find himself shipwrecked and snake-bitten and falsely accused on this island. He can't seem to escape his challenges on this journey to Rome. But in this unlikely place of pain, God provides for him and in some sense honors Paul's faith and his calling on Paul's life and protects him from harm, not from pain, but from harm. And though Paul was having this difficult time with this viper that attaches itself to him and these people saw it and said, oh wow, he must really be a bad character to have been spit up by the sea on our shores and now he's going to be bitten by the snake and die. But in the middle of this, God showed himself faithful, and Paul suffered no harm from this snake bite. And the people who misjudged him and said, he must be a murderer. He must be a terrible man for all these bad things that have happened to him. God actually, through Paul's response to these people in this situation, transformed the people who sat in judgment of him to being the very same people who helped provide for his ministry and give him supplies for the next leg of his journey. Solomon says that uh, when a man's ways are right before God, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And so we saw that Paul's response in this hardship was the best witness that he could have to who Christ was in his life. In much the same way that your response in the challenges that you face can be your best witness to Jesus Christ and your faith in him. When our response is one that makes even our enemies to be at peace with us. That doesn't always happen. There's conflict that the truth and reality of Christ in our lives brings not only to my life and the challenge of my own self and my own attitudes and my own flesh and my own prejudices and weaknesses, but it also presents challenges to anyone who would hear the testimony of Christ in our lives. But our right response in the middle of our suffering is one of the best ways that we can testify to Christ because our response is our witness 
That doesn't mean we won't be misjudged or even shipwrecked as Paul was. Just means that our hope in God outweighs every burden that we carry and every challenge that we face. And it overcomes every problem that we face. Do you believe that? Do you believe that's possible today? Because that's the reality in the life of every believer who's willing to take that step. It's the spiritual reality. It's what's possible. It doesn't mean that we won't be snake-bitten. It doesn't mean that we won't be misjudged or experience pain. It just means that God's grace is greater than the pain that we experience, and He has something better in mind. So that brings us to Acts 28, where we are this morning as Paul continues his final leg of his journey to Rome. After spending three months, Luke says, in this place of sweetness, they finally set sail for Rome in earnest, and after a couple more weeks of travel, they connect with Christian community, of all things, on their way to Rome. Now, they came to Malta here, and as far as we know, these are the first followers of Christ that set foot on this island, and God saw fit to bring them there. But on his way to Rome, Paul meets up with some Christian believers and has this experience of sweet fellowship, speaking of sweetness, in the middle of the challenges that he faces. And I love that, that even in the middle of this, Paul and Luke and, and these others, no sooner did they arrive in the belly of the beast. Think about what Rome is to them. The seat of power, the seat of dominance over their culture for their entire lives. This is what they've known. This other country who is over them. So they're in the belly of the beast on their way here, but even on their way there, they find Christian community and the comfort of fellowship. Just as we too can find Christian community and the comfort of fellowship in the middle of Rome or Babylon or the United States of America. But it becomes increasingly clear here that even though there's this sweetness at Malta and now this comfort of fellowship, it eventually becomes clear for Paul that his life isn't going to end up or work out maybe in the way that he had hoped or planned. Or maybe in the way that we would have hoped for him to end up. Or maybe in such a way that we would hope that our lives end up. There would be no white picket fence, no riding off into the sunset for Paul. It would simply be a call from God and an empowering from God in order to answer his call upon Paul's life. And it obliged me to consider how is it that I envision my life? How do I envision my life Resolving my time on this earth coming to a conclusion. As we read about Paul's life and how he finished the race, how do I envision completing my own race in this life? And how do you envision completing your race? What matters most to us and to what end exactly are we laboring to arrive when our time is over? And this is in my mind and heart a lot more these days as my parents are navigating the season of life that they're in. It forces me to consider my own humanity, and none of us knows. We think it might be years or decades away. Maybe some of us are a little more sober in our understanding, knowing that today could be our last. But should the Lord tarry and other things continue and it be years in the future, what are our plans? What are our priorities for what we would envision or hope that those last of days for us would look like? What are the priorities we have? Because in these final verses of Acts 28, we get a glimpse into the kingdom priority that God has. 
And if we weren't already aware, we're about to hear that it becomes clear in Paul's life, as it was in the life of Christ himself, that the apparent ending of this life is worth trading in and trading up and considering a secondary to the ultimate ending that can only arrive in the next life. Let's read now from Acts 28, selected verses, starting in verse 11. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship and we came to Puteoli. There we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there to meet us, and when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the other soldier who was guarding him, and after three days, Paul called together those who were leading men of the Jews, and when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you. From wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. And they said to him, We've neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you and what your views are for concerning this sect. It is known to us that it's spoken against everywhere. And when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah, the prophet, to your father, saying, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears they scarcely hear, and they close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return. And I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. And when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Thank you again for this, your word to us, your word to your church. Thank you for sending your promised Messiah. Thank you for keeping your word and sending your Holy Spirit to us. We pray you'd empower us through your Holy Spirit to know you more, to understand who you are and to experience life in Christ and through the power of your spirit that you want us to experience. For your glory, Father, and for our own good, Lord, may we, Taste and see that you are good. 
May we taste and see and know, Lord, that you're worth surrendering our lives to. I pray we would know both the sobriety and the sweetness of laying ourselves and our hearts and our lives before you and our futures before you, Father. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen. Fascinating. Fascinating conclusion here to Luke's two-part narrative of his gospel and these acts of the apostles. After spending three months shipwrecked on this island, having lost all their earthly belongings, basically escaping with nothing but their earthly lives, Paul and his companions set sail and arrived at the Roman shores, Luke says in verse 14, we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there to meet us, and when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Just try to imagine what that must have felt like for Paul. After all the trials and the incarcerations and sleepless nights and on open seas and hope being lost, being shipwrecked, snake-bitten and misjudged, think about what it must have been. How encouraging to see some brothers and sisters and just have the fellowship of the Christian community there on those Roman shores. This simplicity of Christian fellowship. As soon as Paul saw them, what a welcome sight it must have been. He thanked God for them and found his courage once again. This is the power of the Christian fellowship that we know through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he thanked God for them. You know, it's easy to mistake Paul as some sort of superhuman, larger-than-life character. And all these things he endured, and he just keeps going back. They beat him and send him out of the city. The next day, he recovers and goes back in to preach the gospel again. Like, what kind of, what kind of superhuman person is? No, no, not superhuman. Very much frail, as he would say himself, just as we are. He knew what it was to be afraid. He knew what it was to feel alone and to be discouraged, which is precisely why he was so encouraged by the fellowship of the believers there. Thank you, Jesus, I'm not alone. Thank you, God, I can get a break from vipers and people judging me and just have some, some sweet fellowship with like-minded believers. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity, the psalmist says. He's experiencing that here. But then immediately in verse 16, when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. So he experiences the Christian fraternity on the Roman shores, but it's short-lived because he's pretty much right back to the isolation and the constraints of his legal predicament. It's a stark reminder that he's under assault constantly and consistently in the world and in this life. His legal case is still pending, as is his appeal before Caesar. So once again, he's under house arrest here in Rome, as he was in Caesarea. And remember how all this began. Back in Acts 21, for the last eight chapters, we've been looking at this. It started with the Jews in Jerusalem, who were the ones who first brought him up on charges in front of their council. And when that didn't prove effective, he was subjected to the Romans, who tried to interrogate him through beatings and manipulating some kind of confession until he said, I'm a Roman citizen, guys, I have rights. And they said, oh, shoot, we better not beat him unjustly. That's not, we'll be responsible if we do that. So they said, stop the presses, let's send him up to, up the chain 
to uh, Felix, the governor, right? Felix, the governor, looks at him, doesn't know what to do with his, case, with his case, so he rots in prison for the next two years, or at least in house arrest. So this whole time, he's been under lock and key. And then the next governor comes in, Festus. I don't know what to do with him, so let's talk to this king Agrippa. He knows something about the Jews, this local uh, king of a local uh, client kingdom under Roman, the Romans. Agrippa, and so he says, okay, let's hear his case. They hear his case, they don't know what to do. He says, I appeal to Caesar, and he's on his way to Rome. And finally he gets here. Remember, it all started with the Jews against him. And what's the first thing he does here in verse 17? Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. He runs straight to the roar. He doesn't shy away from any of this. He said, let's get it out right here in the open. You may have heard something about me in the last, I don't know, years of my life with this trial that started in Jerusalem with the Jews. Let's talk about it. I love how he addresses it head on. He wasn't shying away. In fact, his heart at one point or another is literally breaking for these Jews. Don't forget, they're his brothers. He says of himself, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm of these Hebrews. His heart is breaking for these people who can't see that their Messiah has come. And his faith in Christ was always causing controversy with his fellow Hebrews. And he doubles down on that conflict and invites them to hear a message. And it makes me wonder, does my faith present any conflict to the people around me? It's yours. And not argument or conflict for the sake of argument or conflict. There's way too many Christians who do that. But if the eternal truth of Jesus Christ isn't creating some kind of conflict somewhere, I think we aren't doing it right. And not just on the outside, but in ourselves. We should hear the truth of the gospel that says to love your enemy. That should create some conflict that you say, hey, what am I doing? I thought, I thought I could dislike this person at least a little bit. I thought I could hate them. No, he says you've got to love them. That's what the gospel says. Conflict. Conflict in me. Conflict in the people around me that I'm called to love, does our message of the truth of the gospel create any conflict in our lives or the lives of those around us? Because in Scripture, I see it happening all over the place. Again, not for the sake of conflict. I'm not trying to make enemies. Paul would say to these same Romans in his letter to them, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. That's our goal. We pursue peace with God above all else. You wouldn't water down the gospel in order to accomplish a temporal peace. So he calls any and all of the leading men of the Jews to come and pay him a visit, and they do. They actually come together, Luke says. And when they did, Paul shared his story of how he was accused and had done nothing wrong, and the story of how the Romans found no reason to hold him, and his appeal to Caesar in verse 20. He says, For this reason I requested to see you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. This is why I'm here. I've staked my life on this. I'm willing to give up my freedom. I'm willing to give up my life for this. I'm in chains, literally, for this. The hope of Israel, which is Christ himself. He's the hope of Israel to this day. And they're open to him, at least at first, in verse 22. We desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, it's known that it's spoken against everywhere. We know it's got some controversy. You're a controversial figure. Once again, 
the conflict that arises from being true to the gospel. It was this way in Paul's life, in the life of Christ, as it will be in ours if we preach the same gospel. And Paul was firing away with the truth, explaining, testifying about the kingdom of God, Luke says, trying to persuade them concerning Jesus, using the law and the prophets, their own law and their own prophets, by the way. And Luke tells us that some, verse 24, some were being persuaded. Others would not believe. They wouldn't believe their own Mosaic law or their own prophets. Just as Jesus told the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, Abraham said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And along comes Paul, who, as if from the dead of the sea, being shipwrecked, night after night, all hope of being saved was abandoned. Here comes this man, as if from the sea, as if dead, is presenting to them from the law and the prophets, not to mention Christ, who was raised from the dead. They won't believe the law and the prophets, and neither will they believe someone if they rise from the dead. But some were being persuaded. Not everyone's going to listen, but some will. And it's for these some that Paul is contending, as we also should contend. And Paul brings it to a head, letting them know that their own prophet Isaiah was speaking about them when he said, having eyes they don't see, having ears they don't hear, the heart has become dull. So this is the one who will not listen and not believe the truth shared with them. And this is the case as Paul is sharing this truth with his fellow Hebrews. He says in verse 28, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. Has been sent to the Gentiles. Now this is anathema in their minds. The Gentiles. See, they were near to the covenant. They were near. This was what they were steeped in. We're God's chosen people. Now you're offering that to those who aren't God's chosen people? And does this mean that they're rejected summarily for good? No. Paul would go on to say, God forbid it, he said in his letter to the Romans. It simply means that those who were blind and dull of heart, which was most of them, they were now forfeiting their inheritance as those who had been near to God and close to his covenant. They were giving up their inheritance to those who were had been far away. And the people who were far away, Paul would say, have now been brought near in his letter to the Ephesians. Those who grew up steeped in the covenant love of God were rejecting their lover himself. And now this love for the whole world was being unleashed on the Gentiles in earnest. Not that it wasn't available to them prior to this, but it's less general now and it's specific, saying, whoever will, God loves the whole world, and whoever believes in him, doesn't have to perish, but can experience eternal life. And for the past eight chapters of this book of the Acts, we've seen Paul experiencing trial after trial, only to have this almost unceremonious sort of conclusion here at the end. He's under house arrest. Again, verse 30, he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered, as he waited for his appeal to be heard. 
All of this buildup to this trial in Rome, and there's no account of the hearing at all. No account of his appeal. And there's no direct account of his death or final end, though there are historic accounts of it. There's a reliable consensus among historians of his earthly demise at the hands of the emperor Nero, which likely occurred sometime around the time of the great fire of Rome. We don't know exactly when. Ignatius of Antioch asserts that Paul was martyred for his faith. Uh, Eusebius states that Paul was killed during Nero's persecution of Christians, as did an early Christian author, Lucius Lactantius. So we have it on good authority in the mouths of several uh, historians here that Paul died for his faith. But we have it on divine authority that he spent his retirement years, if you will, in this way. Not on vacation. Not on a golf course. No white picket fence. But in a rented room under house arrest. But in absolute freedom, Luke says. Freedom to share the kingdom of God with anyone who would listen. Teaching the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. I have to admit, if I were under house arrest, I would feel a little bit hindered. Not so for the Apostle Paul. Not so for the truth of the gospel. Not so for one whose priority is maybe different than ours. And this compelled me to think, what are my thoughts and plans for the future? What are the priorities that I have? Or the preferences that I have for myself? For the people that I love? What are the priorities that we have with respect to our final days or final season of this life? Do we plan simply to retire from our labors and have some sort of permanent vacation? And if so, what are the non-negotiables for us? What are the things that we would not be willing to do or places we would not be willing to go or situations in which we'd rather not find ourselves? Apparently in Paul's situation, in his economy, and in God's economy of things, house arrest and beheading aren't the end of the world. These things aren't the end of the world. Is my priority merely to set myself up for ease and luxury in this life? Or do I prepare for the next life? And if so, what would I be willing to forego in this life for the sake of the next? And I can bet almost no one wants to hear these kinds of questions this morning. Thinking about a new year, thinking about all the plans that we have, and ideas and thoughts about the future, and how we would like it to be. But I don't think these questions are supposed to be comfortable. There's a lot of talk these days inside the church and outside the church about living your best life now. 
or at least trying to or planning to or hoping to or making that the priority. Yet so much of what we see in Scripture is concerned with preparing us to live our best life then as opposed to now. The kingdom priority is certainly concerned with the eternal over the temporal, the heavenly rather than the earthly. We see that played out here in Paul's life, a sort of unceremonious and unconcluded ending to an otherwise epic narrative of life. I can't imagine what he saw and witnessed and went through. And it ends in the natural, almost with a whimper of a rented room while he waits for his execution. Sounds like Paul is prioritizing the future above the present. As if he's willing to live his worst life now in preparation for his best life in eternity. He wrote in his letter to the Roman believers here, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us then. For the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God in hope, Paul would say, in hope that the creation itself will be one day set free from its slavery to corruption and into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We groan within ourselves, he said, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we've been saved, but if we have in our grasp right now the thing for which we hope, then it's not hope at all. So he says, I'm willing to forego it for now just for the hope that I have in Christ. So substantive is my faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. But can you hear the language he's using? Present time versus, versus future time. You can go back to that in Romans, Jimmy. The sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in the future. Father in heaven, thank you for this testament. Lord, 
this isn't ending in sadness or depression. It is concluding with sobriety, Father, as to what our priorities are. And Lord, whether or not we treasure you and value your kingdom above all the other kingdoms that we value. Thank you for this challenge for each one of us today. Lord, rearrange my priorities in this life and my priorities in the next. Father, I want you, I want Christ to have preeminence in the decisions that I make and the plans that I evolve for the future. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to your church. And grant that we too, Lord, could not only see the future and see the blessing and have the hope of what's to come, Lord, but that we might, in a tangible way, through faith, lay hold of that future even now and taste it now and experience you now so that it's so compelling. We would say with Paul, the stuff we're going through here is not even worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed. In the future, there's reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and to all who've loved his appearing. Jesus, we love your appearing. We love that you came and subjected yourself to all the things that we experience, every temptation, every struggle that we face, you have walked through this with us. Lord, we love that you appeared, that God is with us, not only as a babe in that manger on the cross, giving yourself and triumphantly being raised from the dead, but that, Father, you sent your Spirit to us, and now the Spirit of Christ can be in us and on us and through us and empowering us now. Father, would you? Empower us through your spirit to lay a hold of these truths today and to respond to them in whatever time we have left. The hours late, the day is short. Father, we turn to you in this moment. In this moment. In Jesus' name we pray.
take place in this moment or in the next few seconds or minutes or the rest of this day, Father, that every earnest seeker would find you today, would find you in this moment. And if anyone would want someone to pray with them, we would be here to pray for you after the service. But I just want to encourage you to maybe take a minute or two right where you are and then as you feel the release to be dismissed, you're dismissed. Pray God's blessing on each one of you.